0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Gaili Lili doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jackie Audrey about her new book, Moving Forward, Reflections on Autism, Neurodiversity, Brain Surgery, and Faith. Moving Forward provides a rare glimpse into how sensory and neurological processing affect functioning and thought through the eyes of a professional, parent, a woman who has experienced them firsthand. This book presents an informative, emotional, and empowering account of the challenges and struggles on the road to recovery, as well as the search for understanding, meaning, and faith. Moving Forward will enlighten parents, professionals, and family members to better understand and assist with neurodivergent people whom they work with and love. Well, Jackie, welcome to the show. Good morning. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. So as we have witnessed the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could reflect on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience
1: sure um you know it's a really hard question and it's really um it's difficult uh to keep uh, focus in such difficult times um and to make sense of things and in in a lot of ways it's a real sense of uh it's a test of faith in a lot of ways to faith that we will Get through it. Faith that we understand what what the right thing to do is, um, and to sort of make sense of of, of a lot of um, just this, you know, difficult situations in the world, lack of trust in our leaders, lack of trust in in, in just about everything. Um, so what I try to do is, um, I, I am a believer in, in God, and I do believe that God has a personal guidance for every one of us. He oversees all of us and and also uh, gives us internal wisdom. And and this is a a test of faith in a lot of ways for me to understand that there's a meaning and a reason for all this in the world um, and that it's just much bigger than me and I can't quite understand it. And to try and connect to the internal wisdom that I have in terms of understanding what my place in this all is, because every one of us has a place in the world and every one of us has a task to do in the world. And in writing my book and in thinking and, and, and being around people um, you know, who are, who are dealing with a lot of fear and a lot of stress, um, I sort of tried to find my, my place in the world and 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 come up with, um, see what I can do in it. And the best I can think is that we all have to try and make the world a better place um, and seek out what our personal mission is and not depend on our leaders to do that for us. We can start within our homes, we can start within our communities, just open our eyes, take a look around and see what we have the capability to do in order to help this world get healthier and make this world a better place. Everyone can have a positive influence somewhere and do something no matter how big or small and we need to take that into our own control when everything seems so out of control and start taking action to, to improve the world. That's, that's sort of what I'm coming from. And, and the other thing I think is that um, we really must, you know, trust our instincts. And if something seems off base or, or wrong for us, uh, even though it's the, the common trend that we need to, to understand uh, why and act upon our internal instincts and wisdom, which is something that guides me all the way through raising my children and and the way I lead my life is to sort of gather as much information as possible, uh, and trust
0: my instincts. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? (laughs) Okay.
1: So, um, after college, I moved to Israel and then I had, um, some children and my oldest son has uh autism so i it's sort of my early experience sort of prepared me to uh assist him along the way which is an amazing thing um and after that i spent many years uh, running between uh, treatment for him and trying to work on the side and i worked a lot of uh, in education and in marketing and writing Um, I did a lot of advocacy for inclusion and parent uh, support groups and and things like that. I had a few other kids along the way. And then about eight years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with a major uh, tumor on my brainstem. And a lot of uh, complicated nerves and essential nerves were involved as well. And it was just a very, very dangerous situation. And I underwent a long and difficult brain surgery. And... When I woke up, I found myself uh, sort of neurodivergent in the sense that I experienced a lot of different sensory and organizational issues. Um, and I was in a very different body than my own, the one I'd been familiar with for, you know, 40 something years. Um, and through that, as difficult as the uh, process was that I had to go through healing and uh, recovering. Um, And I, to date, still have the same sort of issues uh, and sensory uh, overload and perceptual uh, difficulties. Um, It gave me a lot of insights to the things that I had observed with my son and with my other neurodivergent children and the children I've worked through over the years um, that I thought would be helpful for the world to understand. Um, Because I had not only only seen it as a professional, as a parent, but suddenly... I was experienced with things that I'd been observing, and I think that what I learned from the experience was, were a lot of things that could assist others to uh, understand children with neurodiversity, um, so that's sort, of, that's sort of a bit about me.
0: <laughs> I really like what you said earlier about, about finding your personal mission, so your latest book, Moving Forward, would you describe it as your mission?
1: I do believe that it it is um, sort of the culmination of things I've been doing for many many years but right now for the first time I'm I'm in my mid-50s I do feel like everything that I have done to date has prepared me um, for getting this word out to the world and these messages out to the world and to help improve the lives of people with neurodiversity and autism is definitely a mission um, and as, as so many times, especially when there were difficult times, I didn't quite understand why so many, um, I had so many challenges and I had to go through so many things. I realize now that it was all preparation for this. And, um, if I can get the word out there and improve the life of the, even one person through my story, then I've done something that's very significant in the world as far as I'm concerned. And I hope I help a lot more people than, than, than that, but I definitely believe that that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, and, I, and it is my mission to try and get the word out and, and to keep writing and and to keep um, talking to people and meeting people and, and trying to change the viewpoint that many people have about um, neurodiversity, about autism, that, that there are many inaccuracies and many times people uh, Don't realize that we are all different and at the same time we're all the same, that we all want to do good things in the world. We all want love. We all want to share. Everyone has their own way of doing things. Um, And sometimes a person has limited physical or cognitive or sensory or whatever, uh, whatever are abilities at that particular moment. But that doesn't mean that inside there's not somebody there that's wanting to do something and connect and love. And if those are the messages that I can help get out there, um, then I feel that that I've done something good in the world and that's the mission I would like to to continue with.
0: All right, so let's have a look at what you cover in your book. So what kind of topics did you want to address? Um, My book is uh, sort of uh, unusual because it it covers a number of
1: different things that aren't usually... um, clumped together, let's say in in an article or in a book or in in something. Most people don't usually talk about neurodiversity or or autism and all the sensory processing, sort of a a more of a formal sort of technical type of uh, book and then, or handbook type of information that parents that have uh, children that are uh, just diagnosed and they'll be looking for some information. Um, And so I try to get, put as much of that information in a simple um, but informative manner, easily readable, but but that gives enough information for, for parents to assist their children and mm. for professionals to understand that not everything they told them in school is exactly what, uh, what it's like on the other side. Um, and, and, and that they have to look at, at the person and look beyond the labels and the diagnostics and the, and the definitions. After going through that, the, the second part has to do with, um, with my brain tumor and it, it begins on my journey through faith because faith and hope are the two things that have helped me along the way. And I think those are the two things that give people meaning in life and also uh, give people the a reason to keep going forward, keep moving forward. You know, if, if things, if, if a doctor says to a person, like a neurologist said to my son, I said to us about my son when he was only four years old. And he said, he will never ever talk. If he hasn't done it by now that he won't, then he won't. Um, and that's something that takes away a person's hope. Um, mm. And that is a very, very, very dangerous thing to do to a parent who has to treat a child. And then you say, well, if you are never going to get anywhere, then how can I muster the strength to go through what I need to do? In order to help him because it's never going to work now with him um the very next morning he he started saying my name which was incredible and that that shows where hope and faith are more important than what a doctor is going to say um so i go into that bit about faith and also um, after my diagnosis it, it it helped me to move forward and to to give me the strength to go through the uh, adversity that I am facing at the time and then I go into my diagnosis of brain surgery uh, brain tumor and my brain surgery and then a long journal of healing um, which I thought would interest the audience because I tried to tie it back into the things in the beginning of the book which are neurodiversity and and all the different kinds of sensory things and the tools and the lessons that I learned by experiencing things myself and how I tied into things that I've seen over the years. Um, And then to sort of go on to the next section, which was, uh, um, you know, about the pandemic and, and, and what it all means and where we all going. It's a sort of the book is a journey of a search for the mission and, what we can learn and that life is a learning journey and that we all should have hope and we all should try um, and sort of that wrapped the whole thing up. So it's kind of a long and, and unusual journey, but I think that all the pieces fit together like, like a puzzle. The pieces of my life suddenly began to make sense and I discovered my mission, which in, a, in fact is why there was a puzzle on the cover of my book. Um, and the puzzle is the pieces of the puzzle floating down from the heavens um, and I'm taking the you know catching them and then trying to figure out where they go and my son um, who happens to be my son on the spectrum is sitting there playing with this puzzle but what he's doing is helping me fit, gain understanding and to fit the pieces of life together um, and so that sort of explains a little bit about the art on the cover which some people in the in the uh, autistic or neurodiverse communities kind of got a bit irate about because they thought it was that I was an advocate of uh, Autism Speaks or something like that. But I live in Israel and had no idea about any of this stuff until after my book came out. Um, some people actually in the, from the communities asked me to change the book cover, and I thought about it, but then I realized wait a minute, this is, this is about the puzzle of my life and, and, and symbolic of what puzzle pieces have meant all through. Is sort of we're faced with challenges or interesting things, and we try and fit it all together and figure out what we're supposed to do with it. Um, and particularly because my son is, is the one that he's putting the things together because I am learning from him and he is my teacher. Um, and he has helped me to figure out a lot of things and to become a better person. So that's sort of why I haven't changed it at this point. Um, uh,
0: I think that's about covers it. Um, so earlier on, you mentioned really interesting thing that after your brain surgery, you were considering yourself neurodivergent, which is really interesting to me. And I was wondering if you can explain a little bit more what is exactly neurodiversity and how your unique experiences inform your understanding of uh, neurodiversity. Okay.
1: This is a, it's a, I don't think there's any easy uh, answer to the question, but I think Basically, it boils down to the fact that we all have different minds. Um, we're all different, but not lesser. So if a person's mind or cognition, or it can be a, any way of thinking, is, is different than what um, was decided by the medical communities, per se, uh, is the norm. And somebody is not part of that. You know, their, their brain operates differently. That's considered to be neurodiversity or neurodivergent if you're talking about an individual. What I really think about it is just that we are all different. Even people who aren't per se diagnosed with anything have their own particular way of thinking. So if we come to a more inclusive way of thinking, everyone is different and we all have different minds. Uh, Those who do not conform to the typical standard are considered to be neurodiverse or neurodivergent but I will again say different, but not lesser. Um, some of the things that are included in the diagnostic categories are things like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, auditory processing problems, which are um, that you don't have a person with that auditory processing um, disorder does not have an auditory issue that's measurable in decibels. A hearing test will come out fine, but what will happen is that they will not process a sound like an average person. They will miss parts of words or understand things differently. The same thing goes on with sensory processing disorder where any one of the senses can be affected in that way. So you can get, um, uh, visual processing issues. And one of them is Irland syndrome, um, which yeah. is a light processing, perceptual and processing issue problem where, um, it can mess around with your vision or your, your brain doesn't process light or um, accurately. And then that can be corrected with colored spectral filters. And, but what it can do is make all kinds of visual, um, actually I had, I had syndrome after and my children as well. And, and after my surgery and like faces would melt and, and roads would go up, you know, I'd like suddenly I'd be walking on a straight road and it would look like a hill. Um, and you know, all kinds of insanity, no depth perception. And these are all processing problems, uh, they're all neurological uh, issues, and they are considered to be part of neurodiversity. And, and there are many more. Um, that's sort of an overview. Um, what I think is really important to understand is that the educational system needs to rethink itself in order to help people with neurodiversity. And, and once children or people are grown, so does the workplace. They understand that um, there are ways in in, in, uh, in schools to um, accommodate children with neurodiversity. There are interesting ways to teach. There are project-based or problem-based learning situations where kids are more active. Um, they're not sitting still. They're creating. They're doing. In this day and age, there are lots of kinds of assistive devices and accommodations that can be made which will Help alleviate the technical difficulties that the child might have and, and, and enable them to reach by their potential and enjoy learning by um, re- leaving their cognitive uh, resources um, free by eliminating the need for them to compensate or try and figure out. You know, if words are moving around the, the page uh, due to dyslexia or Irland syndrome, then a child. Um, Is not going to be able to you know read they'll spend so much time trying to figure out what the words are and then they'll have no working memory left to understand or remember even what they read so you know there are so many ways uh in school and in the workplace to accommodate people who have uh neurodiversity um and you know if that is done then it will help children to reach their potential and then in the workplace reach their potential Actually, one interesting thing um, is that the workplace doesn't tend to restrict uh, the use of accommodations like the school system. But the problem mm-hmm. is that in the schools, by the time the child has gotten to that point, you know, where if they finish school, they have often, in many cases, failed because of these limitations that are really irrelevant and, and, and don't um, enable them to reach their potential. So they, their self-image, in a lot of ways, is, is, is damaged along the way. Only because of things that, are, that, that don't matter once you finish school. Like For a, uh, example, my son uh, have, uh, sons have dyslexia in Erland syndrome, and when they did their language tests, and I don't know what it's like in, in uh, you know, overseas, but in, in Israel, when they take language tests, like for, for history and things like that, they let them use accommodations. but they say, well, if you're taking a Hebrew test, anything to do with language, you have to take it on your own with no accommodations because they wanna make sure you know, you know how to read and write and, and stuff. But the fact is, if you're testing reading comprehension and the words are moving around the page, then nothing is gonna help. You're only testing um, how, how severe the dyslexia is or the Erlen syndrome is. Not, not at all testing their knowledge of language because if you read to them and you enable them to answer orally, then you find the child knows all the rules and understands everything. So there are things like that are going on, uh, particularly in uh, teaching for the test and the, the ways the educational system is set up these days that are really, really damaging for, for children with uh, neurodiversity. And so much can be done um, to alleviate these issues and, and make the environment much more inclusive um, and to make it become a, really a non-issue because it's all sort of technical
0: difficulties sitting on uh, different neurology,
1: if you, if you understand what I mean
0: yes absolutely and these are such important important issues even going beyond school as well when you go to college sure. university sure
1: and the workplace now what i've noticed and which is really wonderful is uh, since i've written the book i've um i've been on uh, linkedin a lot and i see there's a huge movement in the workplace now to try and uh, include people with all different kinds of neurodiversity and and autism and all different kinds of disabilities, uh, also physical disabilities. But uh, if we're we're talking neurology at the moment with neurodiversity in the workplace, and there is a movement and an awareness that's being generated because people with neurodivergence have talents. And, And in a lot of cases, uh, once they get beyond their sort of technical issues, a lot of times they have talents that are far superior than, um, than the average folks. Um, but they, they just need to be given the opportunity, the uh, accommodations need to be made. And as they're younger and, and growing up, they need to be given the skills and opportunity to, to develop their unique talents, to discover them and develop them. And if they, get, if they do that, then once they hit the workplace, um, they can do incredible things. And there's, it's very nice because there's suddenly, suddenly there's more awareness. Um and and things are starting to move in the right direction.
0: So could you give us a little glimpse into your brain surgery that you cover in your book? Oh
1: my. Brain surgery is not a party. I don't recommend it for anybody, but I figured sort of <laughs> uh, how to deal with it, then might as well learn something from it. Um brain surgery is probably one of the most terrifying things anyone could uh, ever experience when you know uh when I started feeling like something was going wrong and I sort of felt like a car that was running out of gas, you know, and and all my blood tests and everything else. I would say, no, you're perfect. You're wonderful. And I just kept feeling something's not right. And then, uh, then my hearing started going funny on my left side. And and actually that I think is what saved my life. Um, because what had happened is a tumor decided to go into my uh, left ear canal. And I started feeling on one side, my auditory processing became, uh, horrific. I mean, I couldn't understand what people were saying to me. I, I, I was testing normal in the hearing range, um, but I wasn't understanding what people were saying on my, on my left side. And it took about a year of going back and forth the, the uh, ENT before he sent me for an MRI. And when he finally did, they realized that I had about a five centimeter tumor sitting on my brainstem, to, which is huge. Um, five centimeter round, you know, it's, it was this is enormous thing. Um, and my nerves were essential nerves were right smack in the middle of it. Um, and I was within a very few weeks I was, uh, I was operated. Um, you know, when, when the surgeon looked at me, it was kind of like, he wasn't, he he didn't want to tell me that there was a good chance that I was going to die, but it obviously was, (laughs) you know, he was kind of like, Oh, I'm surprised you're still on your feet. And he started telling me all these, uh, Things that might happen to me uh, afterwards, and I kind of um, put my head on the table and was like, "I think I'm going to die, and I don't, I don't know if I really want to ask him that question if I'm going to die or not. But how could I not, you know?" Uh, so I sort of picked up my head and said to him, "You know, am I going to die?" And, and and in addition to that, is my cognition going to remain intact? Because you know, life and death is a very scary thing, and then it, and the other thing that's very scary is am I going to be a burden on my family? You know, I have uh, f- five mm. children and and if I'm gonna wind up uh, completely cognitive, cognitively and physically impaired, you know, how is that gonna affect my family? That was a terrifying thought. Um, and, you know, to, to say goodbye, you know, when I, when I walked out of the house, I mean, some of my kids were young and some of my kids were in high school, you know, and I just, tried to say something to every one of them that, that I thought they'd remember if, or I hope they'd remember if I didn't ever see them again, or if I did see them and I wasn't gonna know. <laughs> Cause you know, he didn't give me a lot of hope, the doctor, but on the other hand, he, he did say to me that, you know, that I, w- I would get through it, but but what would happen and how I would get through it was, you know, dependent on the surgeon, it was dependent on God, it was dependent on how, how much determination I had. Um, but at the same time, you know, I just sort of had to hug my children and knowing that I may not ever see them again, and that's definitely not a place that's uh, even easy to remember or discuss. Um, and then I went to sleep, and when I woke up, um, I didn't, you know, first of all, the, my visual perception went, not, went nuts. I, I couldn't see anything properly. All the lights were, you know, glaring. Everything had... Uh, halos around it, and, and, and my uh, I couldn't really see anything. My vision my vision was really, really, really strange and double and and inconsistent, and my vestibular system was inconsistent, and I couldn't swallow, and I, I didn't know how to walk, and I didn't know how to um, coordinate my different sides of my body, and, and I just had to learn how to do everything over again. I could barely talk, um, but I could think, <laughs> thank God. Yeah um but but i couldn't uh tell people what i was thinking and that's kind of an interesting place to be and that went on for a really long time where i could hardly uh, you know communicate my me and, um, and there was so much my brain was going on you know overload and i had so much i wanted to say and so much i was thinking about and to share um But that's a real lesson because I know that so many people who have communication issues are thinking and they have no way of sharing that. And that's really a hard place to be, Um, you know. And like my son, who is is now 24 and he's on the spectrum, and, and as much as we've worked with him over the years, his communication skills are very limited. Um, you know he he speaks like a telegram. You know he'll speak two or three word sentences, and that's sort of the most you can get out of him. Um, actually, something very interesting is uh, is that we've been doing recently, and maybe um, might be helpful to others to use, is that um, WhatsApp or you know like a, a texting app. WhatsApp is very common. Uh, has been a lifesaver in the last few months. We've realized that everybody's texting, and everybody's using inst- you know instant messages and pictures and things like that, um, mm-hmm. and that it's very difficult to engage speech because uh, his motor coordination is off and mine was off too. Um, And so he's got thoughts stuck in his head, but he can't get them out. Um, But if he's typing them, then he can tell us what he's thinking. The speech is so incredibly difficult to coordinate um, and that the finding the tools to help somebody when they're in that situation is very, very, very important. Um, because if a person can communicate, um, then, you know, it, it's impossible to understand what's going on in somebody's brain if they don't tell you. You can try observe, and observe, and, and that's actually a parent's job to do that um, if you have a child with, with uh, communication issues. Um, but, but it's so critical to give them that skill to, to help them feel more comfortable, not because I'm, you know, judging that, oh, my child can't speak, and that's not okay. But it's, how can I help them communicate because everyone wants their needs to, to be understood? Um, and I totally believe that. Um, and um, and another thing that, that, that I understood at that point was that a lot of times professionals and parents and teachers and stuff, they say stuff about a patient or a child next to them that's not necessarily uh, positive, um, mm. as if they were an object that, that doesn't understand. And I think one of the most important assumptions people should always assume is to assume competence and understanding. Now maybe there is no competence or understanding, it could be, but we must assume always that there is understanding and competence. And if there's a cognitive thing things that need to be adjusted for, um, then, you know, over time, a person working with that person will understand or living with that person will understand it and make those adjustments. But never, ever, ever talk about a child or a person, anything negatively around them, about them, as if they were an object or not there, you know. And that, that was something that happened to me a lot um, after my brain surgery. You know, at, at one point some neurologist looked at my husband and said, oh, was she like this before her surgery? You know?" And I'm thinking, you know, I understand everything. I don't have a cognitive impairment and that mm-hmm. I can't engage my brain or to tell my mouth to move at this point or that you've caught me so full of steroids and my body is you know, like shaking and, I, and anything that does come out of my mouth is not particularly nice. Um, that's not because that's me inside. That's because of what's going on and my technical difficulties. And do not, you know, I I've, I, I can't describe how something like that feels. Um, and, you know, I think about how many times that happens when, you know, I would go into a, a doctor's office with my son and they would say stuff like, oh, what's his diagnosis, you know, what's with him? Oh, he's never going to talk about it. And he's sitting there. He's going to hear this stuff. And what if he understands it all? How is he going to feel? And if this that experience um, is something I, I want to share so that people will, you know, to generate awareness that people need to be really super careful about that and not many professionals even, and, and certainly parents. Um, that, that's something people tend to miss out. They assume that if a person can't talk, they can't, they don't understand.
0: Oh, i really, I'm really glad that you have made this distinction. So basically it's a comprehension and than having the machinery to verbalize it that might be faulty, isn't it? Absolutely,
1: and that there is a person inside there that that that, that you know. Sometimes sensory stuff is so overwhelming. I, I I have had that happen, or sometimes the body can go on strike and just say, you know, go to hell. I mean, I I went to a uh, I made the mistake of going to a school performance. I felt so sad. You know, it's a couple of years after my my surgery and I'm supposed to start looking okay. I'm walking with the cane and I and my kids graduating school and they had put on the performance at the end of the year. And I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and brave this one, right? So I go thinking I'm okay. And then and then I get totally overwhelmed by, you know, um the flashing lights and the loud music and the distorted music and, and the crowds of people and 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 total sensory overload. And and what happened at that point was my body Totally shut down. I tried to walk, and I couldn't. I couldn't make sense of every, anything, and I couldn't make my body move. It was just saying, you know, go to hell. What did you do to me? Or or would tremor, or do all these crazy things, you know, or I have to bounce my knee a couple of times to, to help me walk and things like that. And, and I think about um, things I hear about, you know, kids on the spectrum, you know, that they have a total, complete meltdown before they walk into a shopping mall, or they won't go in, you know, into a... a a wedding or any kind of thing. They'll freak out and, and parents will say, I don't know what's wrong with them and why are they doing these things? It's so difficult. Or a supermarket, the lights in the supermarket. And then I had all this stuff happen to me and I get it. I totally get it. I understand them. They're right. It's terrifying. It's horrifying. You feel like you're in the middle of a war zone, you know, from the simplest thing sometime. And so from that situation, you know, the things that I learned is are that um, when a person is having distorted, uh, sensory perception or processing or sensory overload. The only thing that can help them is first of all, they're to try and find for each sense, the, the tool that makes it a more efficient or compensate. So I have, uh, Irland spectral filters and, and they actually enabled me to walk out the door before that I couldn't really, I wasn't particularly mobile. And I also my vestibular system, which requires, uh, visual input and auditory, you know, from the, or the, the vestibular nerve, which is in your, in your ear, to, to talk to each other. And because my visual perception was so completely off, my balance went completely off. Um, so earland filters, once I sorted that out, um, I was actually, got my balance to be almost normal if I'm not tired. Um, but to look for those tools, so whether it be uh, noise um, uh earphones, for someone who's having sensory overload in the in the auditory sense, or maybe they're having distortion. So to find there are some programs that are that can help uh, uh, pick up speech and you know clarify it. Or like in a classroom, a lot of kids with ADHD have these problems as well, where they pick up too much visual uh, uh, sorry auditory stimuli, and then or they can't distinguish. They have uh, also AP uh, auditory processing disorder. They can't distinguish words on on a a noisy environment, so if they're sitting in a classroom, you know they can't distinguish things. Particularly, they lose words every sentence. Which, which after a few minutes, there's no ability to pay attention. So there are there are um, assistive technologies that can direct sound and then and um, send it directly to uh, an earphone, or you know even iPhones have have programs that can do that. Um, but there's lots and lots of assistive technology there, um, and I learned that it's very important to allow a person to use those and to allow a person to decompress uh, or to avoid a situation that they know is going to be a problem because you cannot fight with sensory things. If that tag is itching and you have hypersensitive uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tactile sense and that tag is itching, there's no way a person is going to concentrate. Um, and, and it can happen in every sense. If something smells, you know, too strong and horrible, then a person going to want to puke, you know? And so this there's, there's all these things that happened. Uh, um, I've seen it on my kids who are all neurodivergent and I had them happen to me. And I have a lot of respect for sensory stuff. You know, you just have to try and find the ways to make it easier. And the other message I have about that is that behavioral treatment of, sensory issues is, in my opinion, wrong and damaging. Um, you cannot, you know, if a person's having a sensory overload and feels like they're in the middle of a war zone and then you stress them out more by forcing them to perform under those situations, whether it be like like an ABA kind of reward punishment system or whatever, um, the only thing that's gonna do is maybe out of fear the person is gonna comply but it's gonna leave so much trauma and it will be ineffective. And also things like stimming um, happen due to an imbalance in the system. Now, when I was having serious vestibular issues um, and I would, you know, sort of, I felt as if my, um, there was like weights pushing me um, to the left, like really, really, really strongly. So, I couldn't stand up straight. And there was nothing visible. I mean, nobody would pick up on it, right? No the therapist would understand that, that that crazy wave was going on through my body, but it was. So, I caught myself standing in the kitchen rocking. I'm like, if I was a kid, somebody would say, You're stimming, stop rocking. You know, I've seen it happen for years and years. I worked in it for a few months in ABA school until I, when it was just starting in a, you know, 80. 87 and everyone thought it was the coolest thing and, uh, and I went there and I saw what it did to the kids and I freaked out I'm like no No, 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 this is damaging But if you balance the sensory system Then the need to stim goes away and it was actually interesting because I was having some of these issues and my physical therapist Who's not you know, I don't have a diagnosis of autism and I'm not a young child I'm an adult and I can't stand up straight. She says hang on to the chair and lean forward and backward, forward and backward, forward and backward, and I just burst out laughing. I said, "You're teaching me to rock." She said, "Of course, it balances out the sensory system." I said, "Are you kidding me? That's what they've been telling these kids not to do: who are rocking. But rocking is one sort of uh, stim. You know, there's a million different kinds of stimming uh, that goes on. Uh, every 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 person who stim has their reason for doing it, and I think most of it has to do with uh, imbalance in the some sort of sensory system. And once that balances out, then the need to stim just goes away. So those are lessons, things that I observed over the years that once I had my surgery and woke up in a in, in body that did all this stuff and experienced all this stuff, that it sort of gave me the um, the the proof that what I'd been thinking and observing over the years was what actually um, was actually going on, at least in some of the cases, which is why I wrote the book, because I thought people need to know that.
0: And how did your experiences contribute to your interest and also ex- exploration of mind-body connection?
1: Well, mind-body, um, I, I sort of went to the, mo- the mind-body and all the uh, things that had to do with mind-body in the healing process in relation to pain. Uh, although the other things as well, because if, if we're in stress, per se, or stress can be overthinking as well, thinking too fast. Uh, um, it can release, uh, you know, chemicals in our body, and those chemicals in our body, and also also stress by sensory uh, overload. Like I said, they, they when you're in the fight flight mode, your body then it prepares itself. So sometimes it's fight flight or actually freeze. So things like parts of my body, you know, shutting down. Uh, my, my extremities or you, you know that's the freeze or preparing to who knows what get attacked or uh, to, f- to run. But if we have too much of those um, chemicals floating around in our body from stress uh, or overthinking, then that creates um, a situation where our muscles are going to contract and that can make pain um, extremely painful. So what happened to me was that I had bouts of, of, of back pain in the past. And, you know, um, it was, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, hold on, I got, I got a traffic jam in my brain. I just uh, thought in Hebrew, and I uh, slipped this. <laughs> Sometimes I, I think two languages at once, and then I can't find either. Uh, so I, I had been diagnosed with a slipped disc. And I was in extreme pain, and I tried all the standard treatments and the non traditional treatments, and I... Um, I was in a terrible state. I mean, it would take me like 45 minutes to get out of bed in the morning and I was limping and, and all this other stuff. Uh, and then at the time, a professor had uh, been treating my son said to me, um, you know, read this book. And if, if you take it seriously, it's going to help you. And if not, you're going to you know, stay in the situation. And, and it was a book by John Sarno. Um, and he talks about um, uh, mind-body. Um, and I had part of the things he talks about, I agree with and part of them not. Um, because he attributed a lot of things to rage. Um, and and I do agree that anger or rage can be part of it, but I think it's just general uh, overthinking. Um, actually, Hannah Studley, she's someone I've met recently, um, come across her work, and she, and she talks about that as well. Um, and she wrote a book called Painless, which I found uh, pretty interesting. Um, but she, she also stresses the overthinking um, part of it. And you're worrying and you're overthinking and you and, and, and then it's sort of, I discovered that whatever natural areas of my body are problematic, whether my brain or after my surgery, it was, uh, my shoulder and this sort of uh, cerebral spinal fluid leak that I have into my neck, um, that, you know, sometimes it's, uh, puffs out and sometimes, uh, goes into my head and creates pressure. It's not a fun thing. Um, but I was in incredible pain all the time. I mean, and and I refused to take uh, painkillers because I figured, I mean, I would take like Tylenol kind of thing. But other than that, I didn't want to get into the whole uh, addiction thing. And I also didn't know how it would affect me with my crazy neurology. So I didn't go anywhere near all those painkillers that the doctors were trying to give me all the time. Um, I just sort of would take uh, Tylenol and, 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 that was sort of takes the edge off the knife that was always there. The knife wouldn't spin, you know, and if I behaved myself, I could sort of get through the day. But once I realized that I'd sort of been fooled because years before with the back pain and I did take the book seriously and I realized that it was coming from my brain, my slip disc suddenly stopped hurting with no treatment. And I was fine. all those years until after my brain surgery and then about a year or two after my surgery i was still in terrible pain all the time suddenly a light bulb went off in my head and i said wait a minute i'm worrying all the time about everything and how i'm going to move and if i'm going to die and if this thing's going to grow back and am i going to need another surgery and how much does it hurt how much does this and all day long thinking about pain and preparing myself for pain and i realized that i had been in that mindset years before with my uh, disc problem and when that happened 80% 80% of my pain disappeared, like overnight. So I still have pain if I behave badly because I I am disabled. I absolutely have physical disabilities and I have, you know, a, a leak in my cerebral sinus fluid so, and a, a bit of a pool of uh, extra fluid in my brain. So if I bend down and stuff too many times and it's kind of like, you know, those uh, water globes and you're shaking them around, there's too much water and you see it makes waves and stuff in their head. I think that's what's going on in mine. So, so I do have to avoid... You know, that sort of stuff. But if I behave myself, then, then, then my pain uh, isn't, you know, debilitating and sometimes it even goes away. And I think the more we're involved with our bodies and our minds um, and, and thinking about pain, then the more unhealthy we are and the worse the pain gets. And I think that really has to do with it overthinking and, 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 and paying attention to it. And if you say, okay, it exists, but I don't care. I have better things to do with my day than worry about my pain. Um, I'm going to do something. And the, basically the more we're out of our bodies and ourselves, and the more we do good for the world and, and others, um, of course, compensate when one needs to in terms of physical, uh, you know, not, not to do stuff that your body can't do, but, um, but to sort of get occupied with things that are more productive and less worrying about what's going to happen. Um, and less worrying about what's going on in the body, then the pain just goes away because you're busy with other stuff and it's not interesting anymore. And the more involved we get with the pain, the worse it's going to get. That's that's sort of my take on mind-body.
0: So thinking about the big picture, what are the implications of raising awareness and including neurodivergent individuals in our wider society?
1: I think that... Society is, uh, you know, a tapestry, a, a beautiful colored tapestry, and everybody and everything has a part of it. Um, and, and like I said in the beginning, we all are divine individuals and we all have a new commission and gift. So if we eliminate um, inclusion and keep people with neurodiversity or any other disability... Uh, you know, anyone who's different, whether it be physically or cognitively or neurologically or even, you know, um, race or, or whatever. Anyone who's different from us, if we sort of exclude them from our, our community or our circles, then, then, then we're at a loss. Every person is born and comes to this world with something to do here. And even if a person is limited in their ability to tell you or to show you, Just being around that person changes you. I mean, my son, who's not that verbal, has taught everyone around uh, him everywhere he's gone to be much better humans because he has never, ever told a lie. He has never, ever hurt anyone intentionally. He struggles and continues and does his best all the time. He progresses at his own pace, which is very different from everybody else's. But he keeps moving forward and people watch him and, 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 and learn to be better people. So even if a person doesn't seem like, you know, they're Mr. Super Talent with, with whatever, you know, uh, expectations uh, that I see society has. He has something to offer that nobody else can. And therefore, society needs to do everything to help each person discover their particular talents and be part of society. I mean there's terrible stuff going on. I, I'm very, very upset like particularly people on, uh, uh, who are artistic, uh, at least here in Israel. I, I'm not quite that familiar with what's going on uh, in the world but, but my son now like I said, he's 24 now and I would like you know he, he, he he's just started working in a plant nursery and he likes it but you know we're thinking about where he's going to go in the future. Uh, with his limited verbal skills, although he's, he's fabulous with uh, getting up and organizing and, and doing everything he learns how to do. He, he visually is fabulous. And he, he once he learns how to do something, he does it amazingly, better than a lot of people uh, who don't have issues. Um, but I think, okay, where's he going next? You know, how is he going to fit in society? Where is he going to uh, uh, gain peer social uh, groups? And, and that's a big problem because, you know, uh, many, many people who are neuro, neurodiverse um, or different in any way have, have a, are lonely. They lack peer uh, interactions. Um, and actually in the workplace, uh, I think that, or in schools, if they would enable them to do projects as opposed to having everyone sit and do you know, testing all day, but to do stuff together, everyone would realize what each person's talents are and then use them to uh, help society to progress and advance. And a lot of the programs here in Israel, if you want something for uh, work or or, uh, living situations, they tend to take people on the spectrum and clump them all together. Oh, there's a great new project, everyone's autistic. You know, go, go, we'll give them everything. And I'm thinking, why is that great new project? Why? You know, would they say that about, uh, okay, we we will take all the people who are blind and we will uh, have them work in one place, you know? well, why shouldn't someone who's blind be able to be part of the general society? Uh, Now that more people who are blind and deaf are part of society. But now I see them taking all these people who are are autistic and putting them in housing for autistic and work situation, people with autism and and, and stuff. I'm thinking, why? The same way that society has made place for people with wheelchairs or people with with other types of cognitive disabilities, um, people who are different, who are neurodivergent, should be able to find a place in society as a whole. And society has to work hard to make those accommodations to enable everyone to show their gift. And I guarantee you, everybody has something that they can do and contribute in society. And it's a terrible loss to isolate or separate people into different groups and, um, and not make those accommodations. That's, that's sort of what I think.
0: Oh, very well put. So what discoveries Along your journey to writing your book, Moving Forward, surprised you the most?
1: Actually, no, I've been thinking about so many years. Uh, the professor, uh, was uh, I uh, wrote about him in my book also, uh, sort of dedicated it to him. Um, he told me right after my surgery that I should start writing because one day I'm going to need it. Um, and he was right. Uh, but all the journals that I had written and the things that I've been thinking about along the way. And, uh, you know, I had I had stuff sort of... All stored around on my computer for many years. And for many, many years, especially because I used to do, uh, run groups for parents, support groups, uh, and, 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 facilitate inclusion and, uh, and things like that. So they've been saying, write a book, write a book, write a book, write a book. And, uh, you know, I, I kept saying, yeah, 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 yeah. and leaving it in my computer. Um, and then sort of sitting around uh, during the pandemic and, and thinking, I, I really need to do something, um, to, to help make this world a better place and sort of I said, okay, I'm going to just try. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take all these things and compile them, and let's see what happens. And what I was amazed is, like, it took about two months, I'd say, to go through it, write all the new parts, and and compile and edit all the older things, and then start, you know, find an editor and start working. But but the process, it was sort of all um, ready in my brain, and I kind of, like, you know, just spewed it out. And I didn't expect that to happen. (laughs) And that... um, following that dream and saying, okay, I can do this. And, and it was how easy it is to, to self-publish a book. It's, it's really easy. You just have to, get, to find a good editor and, you know, a designer and then go on Amazon. And, and you don't have to wait for, for a publisher to say if they like what you have to say or to try to change your messaging um, if they don't like what you have to say. I didn't want my message mess, uh, messed with. I, I say some things that I know are controversial, particularly because I know like, things like ABA are so popular, and, and I know that the, the community of um, the autistic community is, is absolutely, thank God, uh, raising an outcry about how damaging that can be. But I know a lot of people might get you know, angry with me um, or to go against such a, such a huge industry that makes so much money to say what you're doing is wrong. You know, uh, I don't know how many publishers would jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, okay, yeah, you can publish that with me. So I didn't want my messages messed with. And I didn't want them to tell me, take out, you know, your part about faith. How many people want to read about Judaism? You know, you're a minority. Um, but those are the things that make up me. So I, I you know, and my book doesn't fit into any niche anywhere. It's kind of, they say, what what category do you put it on, on you know, BookBub kind of thing? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. You know, what's the most important thing? I've got education. I've got neurodiversity. I've got faith. I've got, you know, healing. I've got brain change. How does this stuff all come together? But, but it does for me, and it does in the book. And I think that's kind of what life does, is, is as, as the pieces of the puzzle fit together of our lives, um, you know, it all, it all uh, gets compiled into something. Um, and so that was, that was surprising how, how easy the, that part of the process was. Um, and now I'm surprised at how difficult it is to market it, <laughs> to get the word out. <laughs> Because, you know, if you don't have uh, uh, major uh, connections or uh, or finances behind you, it's very difficult to get the word out. Um, so that's that's sort of where I'm, what I'm busy with trying to do now. And I've also been very, very pleased and surprised about like, a platform like LinkedIn because I've met so many interesting people over the last few months as I'm trying to market the book um, and, and learning about the trends uh, – in the world and how and um, and how people really want to link up and do good things together. And, you know, that, that's an amazing thing. So it's been a big learning process all around. Um, I highly recommend it to anyone. If you have a dream and you want to do it, go for
0: it. You know, you can. You just can't. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Just do it. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what is next for you? Uh, what's next is...
1: Um, I've started a blog also to you know continue getting messages out. I, I, the book is one particular thing, but there's lots of things I write about and think about. So I invite everyone to check that out at the Jackies J A C K I S B O O K S dot com, um, and uh, you can find all different kinds of things there. And it's brand new, so there's not that much up there yet. But hopefully, in the next you know few months, I'll be uploading lots of content and networking with people around the world and, and trying to, you know, uh, speak and uh, get my messages out. And I've also ha- written a few children's books that maybe I'll be fortunate enough to hook up with uh, an illustrator and, uh, or, you know, I, I don't know how to, uh, to illustrate. And even for one of them I actually would like it to even be musical. But I've got projects like that in the line. I, I absolutely would love to publish my children's books. Um and who knows? I'm open to offers. Anything interesting that, that fits in with with what people read about my messaging and, and, and my books, and let me know. You can link up with me on LinkedIn or find me
0: on my site. And where can our listeners find more information about your book?
1: Okay, you can find it on Amazon. It's Moving Forward, uh, Colon Reflections on Autism, Neurodiversity, Brain Surgery, and Faith. And you can also uh, go to my site, like I just said, www.jackiesbooks.com. There's information about my book and my blog on my site. Um, or you can find me on LinkedIn, Jackie Edry. There's no E on my name. My parents wanted me to be unique. See, they're responsible for this. They started from the time I was young and spelled my name J A C K I. My last name is E D R Y. So I could never, ever buy a t-shirt with the name Jackie on it because no one else
0: spells it like me. Well, Jackie, thank you so much for joining me today and for this insightful discussion.
1: And thank you so much for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it and I look forward to speaking with you more and and, uh, who knows maybe we can do something interesting together.